Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Happy New Year! I hope you all had a good time bringing in the New Year. Whether you spent the time at parties with friends, at a nice dinner with loved ones, or hanging out with your cats playing Game Boy, as I may or may not have done. This year, I want to keep the podcast growing and getting better. With multi-part episodes delving deeper into a given topic, maybe moving onto YouTube or other sorts of media if listeners think it would be of interest, and maybe starting to get some merchandise. Honestly, I never thought that this would become even as popular as it is now, so I'm super excited to see where it ends up at the end of this year. One thing I've been thinking a lot about over the break is what makes science different than other sorts of fields. Why should the public trust scientists? Are we doing enough to gain your trust? And in what ways can we be better than we have been in the past? Secondly, should you trust scientists in the first place? over other academic disciplines that require higher learning. I've got sort of an interesting view on this one, especially considering my time in a field that doesn't get nearly enough credit as it should, philosophy, and my time in a field that seems to get just, like, comically over-credited and fawned over engineering. If someone were to say to you that based on their opinion as a philosopher, the merits of the metaphysical discussions provided in Zen Buddhism and the art of motorcycle maintenance are vastly overblown, you would probably roll your eyes. On the other hand, if a mechanical engineer told you that the design of a certain airplane was overdone and unnecessary for its performance, you might take their views more seriously. But in either case, the person giving their opinion are pretty much experts on the content and background of that particular piece of information, or at least that sector of knowledge. Maybe it's because we think of the humanities as frivolous, unconnected to the real work of engineering and science. Or maybe it's because the humanities are thought of as quite literally frivolous in the sense that they don't often translate to careers where people can make a lot of money, making degrees like English, philosophy, and the arts the realm of those who have had enough money and, you know, family background, to not worry about making too much once they leave. This is also related to a common fallacy a lot of people make, something that a lot would argue is a part of our upbringings as capitalist pigs. The idea that money makes one smarter than those without it is a particularly insidious and damaging argument, and one that often leads to pretty interesting consequences. We assume that people born into wealth must in some way have earned it, since there's no way that they could just be, you know, lucky, right? On the other hand, those that might very well be genius-level intellects are regarded as silly or dumb because they chose to study history or art. Part of my hope with this show is that I could open up more dialogue with people who aren't in the field of science to how scientific history and progress actually happens while at the same time maybe opening up some of my fellow scientists to the less quantifiable parts of life. 
At the same time, I wanted to look at that question I've asked myself since high school. Why is it that certain scientific facts are questioned by the public, while pseudoscience and misinformation is believed almost without hesitation? And one of the primary problems of this sort, at least where I grew up in Staten Island, was the belief that autism was caused by something that was not normally considered to be a standard sort of disease or, you know, developmental delay cause. Whether it was smoking, the radiation from power lines, the chemical plants over in New Jersey, the type of foods that the parents ate, the age of the husband, the sorts of mental state of the mother, the medicine the mother took, it was always something besides bad luck or genetics. At the same time, others took to blaming things after birth on the cause of autism. The most famous version of this is that vaccines cause autism. But there were plenty of others, including the types of food the child was given to eat, breastfeeding versus not breastfeeding, parenting mistakes or a lack of discipline, lead paint or mercury from cheap housing, or even the trauma of 9-11. And I mean, there does seem to be a pretty high concentration of autistic peoples in the Staten Island area. As far as I could tell, everyone I knew growing up had someone in their extended family with autism, or some other neurological disorder, including my own family. But these pseudo-beliefs around autism aren't the only strange or interesting medical tall tales out there. Cancer is another huge issue that comes up constantly on quack medical forums, with people believing things such as cancer being contagious, or becoming more virulent if bothered by standard medical intervention, or that cancer itself is a disease of the spirit versus one of the body. It gets even worse when looking at psychological problems, with diseases made up almost entirely online, including Margellans, electromagnetic hypersensitivity, and others being used to explain issues such as obsessions, compulsions, or phobias coming up unexpectedly in someone's life. And don't even get me started on those that prey on these scared and misinformed people, selling them snake oils and fake cures or claim to be able to rid them of their obvious case of demonic possession over the phone, or that they can feel reinvigorated and healthy again if they buy a supplement powder from their conspiracy website. This week we'll begin a series of episodes on fake diseases, snake oils, and common medical myths and misinformation. This episode will focus on the first basic part of this equation, the general lack of knowledge in the world about how science really happens how clinical research occurs, and how it is that something goes from the lab to the medicine cabinet. I'm always surprised at how little the job of scientists really means to people. Like, what the hell does a scientist actually do in their day-to-day life? When I was a kid, I had no idea. I just knew that I wanted the sweet lab coat and goggles, and to be allowed to make stuff explode. And while I have achieved the goggles and coat, I've yet to find the mythical explosions in Pizza Party Lab that I dreamed of. This episode will look into the mechanics of science, and then how it is that new scientific stuff gets out there to people. We'll look at a famous case of scientific fraud. This will be juxtaposed with the absolute lack of scientific vigor available in pseudoscience and quackery, and hopefully give some insight into why it is that these ideas are usually dismissed out of hand by the academic world. We'll also look at how industry changes science, and how it gets to the public, and what this means for the social, 
or political sides of scientific questions. So this episode will focus on science and how it gets done. And the next episode will focus on pseudoscience and how that seems to get churned up and brought out to the world. After those episodes, I hope to move on to three sorts of what I will call scientific or medical panics. First, I'll look at the strange case of fake diseases and symptoms not believed by the scientific community. One of the most famous of these is probably electromagnetic hypersensitivity, as made famous by the absolutely horrible brother of Saul Goodman on Better Call Saul. Another is Morgellons disease, the supposed illness that causes colorful fibers to grow out of the skin of sufferers, but which medical and psychological experts say is caused by people pretty much looking too hard for too long at their skin and noticing discolorations and dirt you wouldn't notice at first glance. The second episode will focus on supposed superpowers or extreme human beings, One of my favorites of which is the magnetic family who just turned out to be really sweaty and sticky and gross. We'll then look at that most famous case of autism and vaccines and all the other crazy crap people believe vaccines can cause, including having to walk backwards to reach normal walking speed. And finally, at the urging of Dorothea Cogswell, we will look at that mighty fruit, the persimmon which she still swears can heal itself. And at the last episode of this series, we'll look at a case that is significantly more disturbing, at least to me, that of people who fake illnesses or deaths on the internet for fame and pity. So get ready for about five or six episodes worth of medical weirdness, funny stories, and interesting science. Welcome to the Mad Scientist Podcast. Tonight's episode, The Science Machine. So, my mom, who is still absolutely riled up about my discussion of her persimmon magic, by the way, has no idea at all what I actually do at my job. She knows more than most, I guess, because we talk on the phone, and so she gets to hear all the weird problems I need to deal with. The emails, the drama, the writing and editing and editing and editing, and finally the waiting to hear back from reviewers, and then the editing some more. When people ask her what her son does, she tells them I'm a chemical engineer, which is true, but usually very unhelpful to most people. So then she tells them I do something with capturing carbon dioxide from the environment, which is closer to the truth, but far away from what I actually do. And I bet this is the same issue a lot of people in the hard sciences get into. I just tell people I'm a chemist, and that usually gives them the cool idea that I mix around chemicals and test pH and make foamy vapors and all kinds of awesome things. But in reality, like 90% of my job is writing up reports, either to be published in journals, hopefully, or to be read by my advisor or students after me, so they can replicate what I've actually done in the lab. Science and being a scientist really starts with graduate school, which is where I am now. In graduate school, you're basically an apprentice, working under some professor who is the top in their respective field of inquiry. So I went into graduate school for chemical engineering, and am working in a lab that specializes in the creation of nanomaterials 
for environmental cleanup, which is the fancy way of saying I make expensive sponges. As a graduate student, your job is to do research on a given topic, but also to report on that research so that other people know what you're working on. One of my professors used to say that science is worthless if you don't tell people about it, which is where a lot of the wonkiness of science comes into play. So as a scientist or graduate student or engineer in a lab, your job is maybe 25% research and 75% reporting on that research effectively, either in presenting your work to peers at meetings, going to professional conferences where scientists all get together to eat free food and talk about their work, or by submitting articles to peer-reviewed journals. Peer-reviewed journals are the lifeblood of the scientific community. This is where all science gets read, vetted, and put out into the general public. Peer-reviewed means that the article you submit has to go through numerous checks, edits, and standardizations before it actually gets accepted for publication. So for example, if you wanted to publish a paper on some topic, you would first find a journal that deals with that topic, or at least has published on something similar to it in the past. So let's say we're researching the bird songs of the Amazon. We would first find a journal that deals with birds, or bird songs, or the Amazon forest potentially, and decide to submit to it. We would then take all the data we've collected and present it in a paper, and submit that paper draft of our report to the journal editors. The editors usually have some quick check method to make sure the paper is within the scope of the journal, or fits all the specific guidelines, such as word count and other stuff. The paper is then sent to a board of experts in that particular field. So in our case, it gets sent to a board of the top experts in the Amazonian songbird and their singing, or the Amazon ecosystem, or specialists in other sorts of bird songs, that kind of thing. Then, depending on the quality of the paper, and how the review board says that paper is, the editor will then accept it or deny it. Usually, the review boards are brutal with their edits and comments, and they should be, right? They're trying to test the merits of the work, make sure that the science inside of it is good, and that all the different errors or mistakes someone may have made, or could have made, are pointed out so they aren't publishing something that's false. Although knowing that still doesn't take the sting away from the bad paper reviews you may get as a person doing research. In a perfect world, then, the pipeline of science would go something like this. You think of an idea and some way to test the variables around that idea, and then you run the experiments. You then submit those results in a paper to a journal. The journal editors and review board read the paper, and if it looks correct and the science is sound, it's accepted with or without revisions. If there is a mistake, or some egregious error that the author didn't see at first, it's denied. The result of the work is then sent to the public through the journal's publication, either online or in print, and then the news and other scientists can discuss the work and its merits. But in the ever-prophetic words of Ronald Mac McDonald from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, quote, Science is a liar sometimes, end quote. If you've been on Reddit, I'm sure you've seen front-page articles where they talk about a new miracle cure for cancer, or an AIDS vaccine that finally works, or solar-powered airplanes, or teleportation at the molecular scale. But if you also live in the same universe that I do, 
you'll notice that we still don't have any of those things. So what gives, Reddit? Well, the issue is that this scientific news is going through a filter. A sensationalized filter, in fact. Usually through the public relations wing of some university, company, or just a newspaper. When you make a big discovery, usually the first thing you do is protect it somehow. Either with an invention disclosure or a patent, or a publication. But once it's accepted for publication, the next step is usually to start telling people about it. That used to mean telling people at conferences, but in the modern age of the internet and the hyper-competitiveness of universities, that now means putting out press releases about some discovery and its miraculous potentials. And this usually happens without the very detailed specifics that often go into a particular scientific test, at least not in the headline anyways. So a clinical trial that cures 50% of mice of a specific strain of breast cancer becomes a miracle cure. And a new photovoltaic material that is made up of single atomic layers of metal oxide becomes the impetus for solar airplanes. What they don't put in this article is that something at the lab scale usually takes at least five years to get to market. And that's if it doesn't involve people eating it or using it on their bodies in some way. Scaling up scientific discoveries from laboratory scales, where maybe you're making a few grams of material, or testing a hundred different samples, to industrial scale, where you're making hundreds of kilograms and thousands of different samples for testing, takes time, money, and a lot of difficult science. In fact, that's kind of the one thing chemical engineers have over other engineers or science majors. That ability to scale up using mathematical formalisms to get close to the same system as you had at the bench. Well, that, and super good-looking podcasters, of course. All you need to do to see this in the world is look at the Google News sections for any scientific topic. Let's take cancer cure, for example. One of the top hits is from the International Business Times. And the headline is, quote, Cure for cancer found? Brain tumors disappear in patient receiving CAR T-cell therapy. End quote. It's only until the second to last paragraph in the article that we get the following. Quote, The trial is only the very beginning for a new avenue of cancer research and was unsuccessful in yielding similar results in two other patients at Center of Hope. Researchers also noted acute side effects, including headaches, muscle aches, and fatigue, though those could have been from a variety of medicines the patients was using throughout his treatment. Still, the doctor, who has also experimented with providing CAR T-cell treatment to 10 brain tumor patients at the University of Pennsylvania, says it's still a fundamental breakthrough that they showed this is safe, at least in this patient. End quote. This work is a big deal. It's awesome to see at least someone getting cured of almost certainly lethal cancers at some level. And I can't even begin to explain how over my head biology is. Like, physics and chemistry, I am all good with. But the minute those things start working together to make a cell, you can count me out. My brain just doesn't work that way. But even I can see that to call this a possible cancer cure is extremely premature. First off, it would only cure this specific sort of brain tumor. Secondly, it's only worked successfully for a single person to date, making the scaling up of this technology 
difficult to predict at best. Another issue for science and how it gets out to the real world is how the hell do you pay for it? Science doesn't happen in a perfect world, of course. And the true mover of scientific progress is that mover of all things, money. So the bigger deal your work looks like, the bigger chance there is that you'll be able to pay to continue it somehow. Funding for science usually comes primarily from governments, who hope to spur advancement in their country for the economic and morale benefits it can provide. At least, that's the idea, until the Zodiac Killer comes along and shuts down the government for a few months. When Ted Cruz helped shut down government funding in the U.S. for those few months in 2013, labs closed their doors at facilities throughout Boston, where I was living at the time. It was crazy. Friends who were working on cancer cures or genetic disorders or all kinds of amazing, important science couldn't go into work because some weirdo from Texas had a hard-on for shutting down Obamacare. Needless to say, screw Ted Cruz. Besides government, you have industry, of course, which pays for science through their own labs or working in tandem with scientists at universities. Although this sort of work usually only makes it out into the world if it's profitable in some way. For example, it's unlikely that an oil company will want to research the mating habits of freshwater fish in the rivers of Montana, but they may want to research how to capture sulfur dioxide from exhaust gas. This, of course, brings up another one of those boogeymen of the modern age, the evil corporation who is destroying the planet for their own gain. That's a topic for another episode on its own, especially since so many industries or companies have just vastly different takes on that issue, with some seemingly being actually megalomaniacal and others just sort of getting thrown into the pot with all the others. But to take one argument of this sort, I always hear, and at least sort of question it. I seem to see online that the idea that the pharmaceutical companies would never cure cancer because it just isn't profitable. And that argument always sort of gets to me. Number one, I know a lot of people in the pharmaceutical industry, and I can promise you that they would love to cure cancer. But besides that, economically, the argument just doesn't make any sense. Of the top 12 drugs sold in 2015, only four are cancer drugs, those being for metastatic cancers, breast cancer, leukemia, and multiple myeloma. The top four drugs are for arthritis, hepatitis C, arthritis again, and Crohn's disease. If we look at other lists, the top 50 sellers in the pharmaceutical industry are usually some combination of diabetes, erectile dysfunction, depression, and heart or cholesterol medications. So, if I was an evil genius trying to make money off the sickness of the world, I'd make sure to keep everyone cancer-free long enough that they could get diabetes and erectile dysfunction. Finally, in this mix of funding, you have angel investors or benefactors who are trying to do some good in the world, or who are trying to make some money off of new technologies. Bill Gates is the perfect example of this, someone who puts a lot of money into causes that are not particularly strong sellers at the marketplace, such as malarial disease cures. Their money usually dwarfs that of governments and industry, however, and oftentimes are found to be looking to promote things that will benefit the most people in the world, as opposed to further our scientific knowledge the farthest. 
That isn't to say that scientific advancement isn't good for the world generally, although that in itself is an argument for another episode. But rather, it's unlikely the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation will fund research into the crystallization of rare metallic alloys when there are thousands of dying from diarrhea or malaria every month. Again, just for scale, if we look at data from the National Science Foundation Higher Education Research and Development Series statistics, about $40 billion of research comes from the federal government. Two to three billion is state or local funding. 10 to 11 billion is from institutions of higher education themselves. One to two million is industry. And two to three is other sources, such as outside charities or funds. So all this money flying around means that science can be pretty lucrative. And like anything lucrative, it becomes very competitive and sometimes even arguably unethical. Or at the very least, begins to have instances where the possibility for unethical behavior creeps in. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There are obvious flagrant violations of this. For example, people simply falsifying data. But these are usually pretty rare and are very big deals when they happen. Most recent reporting on this suggests that the number has increased significantly, but it's still around 10 in a million papers published being pulled for fraud. A larger issue is the increase in predatory journals, which will publish your work for a hefty fee, usually without significant peer review. In these journals, the chances for mistakes or fakery increase significantly, as you can imagine. Other problems include the inability to replicate data or scale it up once it's made it to a journal. A number of companies talk about this when their workers go out to give talks at universities or conferences, and it's truly fascinating. One striking example is that of the former head of cancer research at Amgen, C. Glenn Begley, who had his team at his new company, Tetralogic, attempt to replicate 53 of the landmark papers in cancer research to this point in time. As he reported in the journal Nature, which by the way is the gold standard for scientific reporting along with the journal Science, that 47 of the 53 reports could not be replicated. A quote from an article about this in Reuters is as follows, quote, The failure to win the war on cancer has been blamed on many factors, from their use of mouse models that are irrelevant to human cancers to risk-averse funding agencies. But recently, a new culprit has emerged. Too many basic scientific discoveries, done in animals or cells growing in lab dishes and meant to show the way to a new drug, are wrong. Begley's experience echoes a report from scientists at Bayer AG last year. Neither group of researchers alleges fraud, nor would they identify the research they had tried to replicate. But they and others fear the phenomena is the product of a skewed system of incentives that is academics cutting corners to further their careers. George Robertson of Dalhousie University in Nova Scotia previously worked at Merck on neurodegenerative diseases such as Parkinson's. 
While at Merck, he also found many academic studies that did not hold up. It drives people in industry crazy. Why are we seeing a collapse of the pharma and biotech industries? One possibility is that academia is not providing accurate findings, he said. End quote. I probably completely butchered the name of that university, by the way. <laughs> this points out a fascinating issue in science, one that people don't often take into account. Science doesn't happen in a vacuum. Bad jokes about all the science using or utilizing vacuums aside. And so money, politics, and social concerns will also come into play. There's a reason we know a lot more about how to use every molecule in a vat of oil for some purpose than how to cure malaria. And it's not necessarily an evil one, or at least not an evil with a face or a name. Perhaps it is an institutional evil of living in a society where we sell things for money. I mean, we can have that argument all day, frankly. But it's simply a fact of the matter that at this point in time, science needs money to survive. Therefore, making money drives science and technology forward. But publishing and reputation in science is hypercritical. And some cases of this drive to publish cause people to really make life-destroying decisions. One recent one involves a scientist from Japan's Laboratory for Cellular Reprogramming. Haruko Obokata was a stem cell biologist who published works in the journal Nature in 2014, which again is like the big name in scientific publishing. In fact, just as a quick check for you listeners, the joke in scientific fields is that the more vague the title of a journal, the better it is. So Nature and Science, which could in theory cover absolutely everything you could ever want to publish, are of the highest quality and hardest to publish in. While very specific journal titles, like the Journal of Northeastern Cobalt Metallic Alloys or something, may not have such a big readership and so are not thought of as highly. Anyways, she published this work with her mentor, Yoshiki Sasai, and a few others. Again, I'm not a biologist, so I can't go too hard into the specifics of stem cell research and mechanics here. But generally, what she claimed to have done was create what is known as a STAP cell. S-T-A-P, which stands for Stimulus Triggered Acquisition of Pluripotency. Pluripotency is the ability of a cell to differentiate into the three different major types of stem cells that are present in an embryo during its formation. So in other words, a cell that is pluripotent is one that has the potential to transform into any cell in the body if given the right stimulus. So this is a huge deal to stem cell research. If we could take cells that have differentiated to some degree, say from the spleen, and then cause them to revert back to some form of pluripotency, suddenly we've opened the door to stem cell therapies using cells from a person's own body, without any of the ethical questions of, for instance, embryonic stem cell research. In her paper, she claimed that it was possible to take stem cells from the spleen of a mouse and convert it back to a state of true pluripotency by basically shaking them in a weak acid, or by other physical and chemical impulses, leading them to form into other body cells when implanted into mice. This was so important that it was immediately heralded as an insanely big deal, and her work started to be attempted by other researchers. But there's the problem. After she published her work in Nature, and in fact she published it in two articles, no one else could get her results, even following her work exactly. People started looking more closely at the two papers, finding that she had plagiarized text in them. 
Even worse, it appeared that she had altered some of her images in the article to make it match her claims more closely. And almost comically, it looked like she had just copied images and data from other experiments she did during her PhD and included in her thesis a number of times, using it in the Nature articles to support like totally different experiments. Which is only slightly less bad, I guess, than totally making up data. These concerns led her co-authors to ask for the papers to be retracted, and causing her research institute to require her to replicate the experiments within three months. She wasn't able to do so, and they formally announced on April 1st of 2014 that in their findings she had performed scientific misconduct. In their conclusions to the report, they said, quote, In manipulating the image data of two different gels and using data from two different experiments, Dr. Obakata acted in a manner that can by no means be permitted. This cannot be explained solely by her immaturity as a researcher. Given the poor quality of her laboratory notes, it has become clearly evident that it will be extremely difficult for anyone else to accurately trace or understand her experiments. And this, too, is considered a serious obstacle to healthy information exchange. Dr. Obakata's actions in sloppy data management lead us to the conclusion that she sorely lacks not only a sense of research ethics, but also integrity and humility as a scientific researcher, end quote. Damn, that is a strongly worded conclusion. After this, her articles were retracted in June of 2014 with her permission. Her mentor, Dr. Yoshiki Sasai, committed suicide in August of 2014, after a period in July where Obakata and the team attempted to verify her work again at the Riken Institute where she was working. Dr. Sasai had been cleared for misconduct, but his reputation and career was likely ruined after this event. Obakata did eventually resign from Riken in December of 2014. But that's not even the end of this one. She ended up writing a book called That Day, which I haven't read. I don't know if it's actually been translated into English yet. But if it ever is, or if it is now, I totally need to pick it up. From reviews of the book, though, in it, she attempts to point the finger at another person in the lab who supposedly helped with the experiments, who she claims tried to minimize their part in them incorrectly when, you know, the investigation occurred. And besides that, it looks like she's still fighting to regain her scientific credibility. She has since started up a website called staphopepage.com, which gives her methods and ideas on how to replicate her original work, which I guess she still believes is possible. So, you know, if you have some free time and some, you know, mouse spleen cells lying around the house, I guess you could have a go at a Nobel Prize, I guess. So why did people buy this crazy story, this like wonderful claim that was almost too good to be true. Well, that ended up being too good to be true in the first place. From an article on this very question in Nature, we have the following quote, which I think is quite informative. Quote, For many stem cell researchers, the most shocking part of the STAP controversy was the involvement of Niwa, Sasai, and Wakayama in such troubled work. And as an aside here, those were her co-authors who had been working in this field forever. So, continuing the quote, 
Co-authors of a paper like that should have been certain that they can reproduce results independently, and in this case, they should share responsibility, says Davor Solter, a developmental and stem cell biologist at the Institute of Medical Biology in Singapore. Wakayama takes the blame for not making more effort to check Obakata's work, such as looking at her notebooks, which the investigative committee found to be alarmingly disorganized. Others sympathize with the researchers, who themselves were duped, whether through negligence or intention, by a junior colleague. There has to be control, but also trust in science. Otherwise, the system breaks down completely, says Maria Lepton, a molecular biologist and director of EMBO. I cannot watch over every step while they are pipetting. That's not the point. End quote. I think that that line at the end of that piece there, in science there has to be trust, is completely true. There has to be trust between the people working in a field to not be trying to trick one another, between a mentor and a student, and between the public and scientists themselves. These scientists took Dr. Obakata's word because she had the backing of respected colleagues, whose names are now forever tarnished by her unethical behavior. So, in all, it comes down to the question of personal ethics. And frankly, in my mind, this is a case where science worked the way it should. Someone made a false claim, and it got caught within months. Still, it's a shocking story. One that makes the public question the validity of science and scientists. But it isn't stories like this that really, truly make people not believe in global warming, for example, right? Or like, not take vaccines. So what are some of the arguments for these very clearly incorrect but still extremely prevalent ideas. That's where we'll pick up next episode. Thanks again for listening to the Mad Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Cogswell, and my logo was designed by Carrie Shaheen. This week, the music comes from Not From Concentrate, a local band once again from Staten Island, New York. I really like their music, and I hope that you will too. This song is called Product of My Century. You can find more from Not From Concentrate on Facebook and Twitter, and of course on YouTube. Thank you again for listening.
In a world infatuated with comic fandom comes a show to help us remember the talents that have inspired us. Whoa, 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 cut. Oh, come on. It wasn't that bad. It's a bit dramatic. Let's just tell them about the show, guys. We are the Canned Air Podcast. Join us weekly for a comedic trip through pop culture. We also welcome some cool comic creators, as well as some of the voice and screen actors that helped shape your childhood. Find us on cannedairpodcast.com and on the Evergreen Podcast Network. 